Good morning. Whether you're joining us live here on Sunday at 9 a.m. or you are watching this at some point later in the week or maybe even, I guess, months ahead, um, thanks for taking the time to plug in. Uh, I'm going to open with prayer and then we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning, for your gathered church around the world. We pray that as we gather, whether in person or via technology, that you would do a work in and through your church. You would strengthen your people. You would foreground the things by your spirit through your word that you want us to be paying attention to. God, that there be a real felt sense of your presence and your power as your people gather to celebrate you, to learn at your feet, and then to be sent out into mission. God, I pray that this morning, this message would be used by you in a powerful way to form our church to be light and salt, a force for good in this community. Thank you for this opportunity to learn and grow. We love you, God, and we just pray and ask that all that happens through this message and through our worship would be pleasing to you. Amen. Okay, so we've been moving through a series called Reset, because I think in the early months of 2021, it's really critical for us to kind of take a deep breath, take stock of what has happened in 2020, both at the big picture level, but also in our own lives, our own core relationships, and at least invite God to search us and to say, do I need to reset in certain areas? Are there certain ways that my life has become bloated or malformed or disfigured or just overly busy uh, or overly distracted, and then to come back to some first principles. And two scriptures that for me have been really formative in this process have been Hebrews 12 and Romans 12. So Hebrews 12.1 says, because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And then let us run the race with perseverance marked out for us. And then in Romans 12, we read that we're called to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed through the renewing of our mind or our mindsets. To become a Christian is to receive God's spirit and then to be moved into a new way of seeing everything. God, reality, yourself, your role within that, um, within creation, and I was thinking about Hebrews 12 this week, talking about running your race and, and casting off the things that are a hindrance. And often in the summer at the gym that I go to, we have to do some component of our exercise with a weight vest on. That's a relatively small weight. I only use about 20 pounds. That's less than 10% of actually my body weight. And I put this vest on and you end up looking kind of tough because you kind of look like the SWAT team guy. Um, but any, uh, any vainglory that might be built from how you look dissipates pretty quickly once you start running with that thing on, doing pull-ups with that thing on, push-ups with that thing on, even an exercise that you intuitively wouldn't think it would make much of a difference, like rowing with the weight vest becomes a huge strain really, really quickly. It's not a lot of weight, but because the weight is kind of sustained pressure on your chest and your lungs. 
you discover really quickly that two, three minutes into whatever the workout is, you just can't take a full breath. It feels like the maximum you can kind of intake is 75%. And so you're straining under this relatively small weight and it makes things that are already difficult way more difficult. And then when you take it off, it's such a relief. I mean, it literally feels like 100 pounds have come off of you. And those first few full intakes of air are just the most amazing feeling because you feel like instead of your lungs going like this, they can actually expand and you can get oxygen into your blood. It's an amazing feeling. It's a huge relief. And I think of that often in the context of Hebrews 12, where life is difficult, those workouts are difficult, but we can make them even more difficult than they need to be if we allow these burdens and weight and hindrances or even sinful entanglements to kind of present this perpetual strain on our spiritual system. And one of the ways we know that we're hindered is that we can never feel like we can come up for air fully, that we're always kind of operating at a very diminished capacity. And so part of what we're doing in this series is to recognize that I've had times in my life, 2020 was definitely one of them, and maybe it was for you too, where I was trying to run my race as a Christian, but I had a weight vest on. Now, the cause of that weight is probably different for me than it was for you, and there are going to be times where there are hindrances and challenges before us. But what I love about Hebrews 12 is that it affirms that God wants us to run light and free. And that often, it's not God's plan. It's not God's will. It's not God's design that we labor in mission for him, going out into the world, being salt and light under this deep, deep strain. A reset in our lives necessitates throwing off those spiritual weight vests, those burdens, and then to renew ourselves in habits that are actually constructive and healthy and that allow us to get that full breath of air, that allow us to oxygenate our system with God's spirit and God's word so that we can be strengthened, so that we can go into the year ahead with a sense of renewal, and feeling recovered and saying, yes, I've been strengthened by God to do the things that I know God has called me to do. And we start that process when we allow our minds and our mindsets to be challenged and changed by God's truth. That's Romans 12. We begin to learn how to adopt a mindset that aligns with how God sees us, how God sees um, our mission who God tells us we are, our identity, and then out of that identity, the particular mission that God has called us to in the world. And as a foundational part of that, what we do is we kind of allow Jesus to be the center of defining both our identity, but also the direction of our mission. And he gives us an essential pursuit to seek God before anything else and his righteousness to grow into godly character, become more like Jesus. He gives us an essential priority to worship God alone, to not let competing interests overtake our foundational commitment 
not just um, our belief in God, but our commitment to learn in all things to make God a priority and to live in such a way that God's reputation is actually enhanced because of the way we work, the way we go to school, the way we hang out with our friends, the way we engage with our kids. And then he's given us an essential command, which acts as guardrails to say, there's lots of ways that you can express this essential pursuit and this essential priority, but it has to be anchored in love. You've got to do these things increasingly in and through the love of God to receive from God and then to allow that love to transform your core relationships around you. And so what happens is when we turn our lives over to Jesus and we begin to cooperate with God's spirit to align our sometimes self-serving or just kind of ignorant and foolish uh, uh, lives, increasingly, and, and we cooperate with God to increasingly align those to how God wants us to live, then God's spirit leads us into sort of a deeper and slow often, but steady maturity in him. We begin to grow and have a more profound sense of who God is, growing in our own self-awareness, growing in our um, motivation and equipping for the call that God has for us, both generally and specifically as an individual or family or family unit. And we bear certain kinds of fruit. Our lives take on a certain take on certain characteristics. And the Bible calls those the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, gentleness, self-control. And so what's really interesting is that as we give our lives over to Jesus, as we essentially pursue becoming like him, we don't actually become less like ourselves and more like Jesus. We actually become more Christ-like and more our true selves. There's a lot of talk today about true self and being authentic to oneself. Scripture says we can't know ourselves without knowing God because he's our creator. And he's the one who not only created us, but has a purpose and design for us. So as I learn more about God, as I learn to center around God, as I learn to pursue and follow Jesus, I'm not leaving my identity behind. I'm leaving behind a false or incomplete identity. And I'm moving towards a deeper understanding of, oh, this is who Jeff Strong is meant to be. And that happens not as I focus on myself and my own identity wholly. It, it happens as I give myself fully to pursuing Jesus. And that's a process of transformation. It doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not like I become a Christian and it's like, bam, here we go. My life kind of immediately orders itself settles into the right way of doing things and then I just kind of set it and forget it. I, I kind of go on cruise control like in a car. I can kind of um, just relax in terms of some of the intentionality and just kind of just cruise through life. No, it, it demands my cooperation. It demands God saying, yeah, you've yielded over here, but not over here. Or this is where you need to grow or this is what I have next for you. And being responsive to that. So to become a Christian and to grow involves all these little resets that God uses in order to get us on track, keep us on track, move us from where we are to the next level of maturity and growth and impact in the world around us. And so we've been moving through these ser this series looking at what those habits are. And we've tried to look at the deep habits 
Um, not necessarily mechanical ones like, well, just read your Bible more every day. Just pray. Those are important. You need to do those. But you can, if you don't look at the deeper habits that underlie them, they can just become rote religious rituals that really serve no purpose other than checking them off your list. They don't become necessarily transformative. The habit that I want to talk about today, just a bit of a fair warning, uh, especially for those of you who grew up in church culture and went to a youth group, this is going to sound a little bit youth groupy, and that's because the habit that we're looking at today is something that we, I think the church does a pretty good job, I think certainly our church does, of foregrounding its importance for junior high and high school students. But what's interesting to me is we treat this habit as if it's something that only people in that age and stage of life need to really, really concern themselves with. And the reason I say that is because it doesn't often become an area of focus of study for many churches after um, kind of the youth group phase of life. But these are actually, this is actually a foundational habit if we want to learn to reset our lives, to run free and light, and to move into the next phase of transformation where God begins to change our mindsets around certain things. I'm stealing the language around this habit from an article that was really impactful for me in December um, by Liz Huber. She's a productivity coach, a lot of wisdom, uh, and the article is called Eight Meta Habits to Make 2021 Your Breakthrough Year. So I know that sounds really cheesy and corny, um, but it's actually full of excellent wisdom. And I loved this, um, the way that she frames this biblical habit, because, I don't know, it just caused me to really think about it differently. She says, one of the things that you need to do, especially in the social media information-driven age, is obsessively curate your inputs. Obsessively curate your inputs. If you want to experience a reset in your life, you've got to start at an obsessive level, being very discerning and organizing, according to a plan, what inputs you allow into your life. And she talks about the inputs of at least two broad categories. Information, what you give your attention to, and then whom you allow in your inner circle of direct influence. So kind of your informational inputs and your relational inputs. And she says, in both of those categories, you have to grow and develop a kind of obsession with curating what you allow to influence you. We know that at any given moment, we're always taking in information across a number of sensory domains, right? Um, and you're giving your attention to something. Maybe that's me right now. Maybe your mind has wandered and you're thinking about something else. But at any given moment, you are taking in information and giving your attention to something. And how you organize and lead that flow of information, how you direct it, is, is absolutely massive. Right? And, and we can just go to an extreme. If you feed your mind all day with um, distracting, low-quality information, if you consume sort of any and all media, and you surround yourself with people who, generally speaking, are 
not supportive, counter-supportive to the things that you say are important to you. And if you mindlessly allow the priorities and values of those people to begin influencing and then dominating your life, it's very easy for us to see how that is priming us for failure. And we're sensitized to this. Again, when, when, the, um, when the subject is a teenager, a son or a daughter, right? We're, we're highly sensitized to the kind of information they're exposed to and who their core friend circle is. Because we understand those two things have a disproportionate impact in that window of life. We understand that especially during adolescence, your inputs really do in large part determine your outputs. What information you allow in, what ideas you're continually being exposed to, and what ideas you're ruminating on and giving attention to, what is forming your imagination about what life is all about and what you want your life to be about. Those things form your heart and they spill out into your life, right? There's that saying, garbage in, garbage out. And that's um, a rudimentary way of saying, if you code a computer program wrong, you can't expect the output to be logical, organized, and accurate. But the same principle holds true for us as human beings. If we allow low-quality, garbage, distracting information to be the dominant input in our lives, it's going to manifest through our lives with, in a sense, a low-quality life. It'll be very difficult to prioritize and to live into and succeed at the things Jesus calls us to, while at the same time kind of drinking contaminated water. If you find yourself in need of a reset, I might even invite you to think about the fact that part of the reason maybe that you need that reset, that you feel like you can't take a full breath of air and kind of get your legs under you, is maybe because you've allowed a critical mass. There's been a tipping point in your life of low-quality, ungodly, unwise, unhealthy inputs both at the information level and at the relational level that has slowly creeped in and actually overtaken your life. And it probably wasn't intentional, but there's just been many slippages along the way in terms of what you give your attention to and whom you allow to speak into your life and to be a major influence. Your life is now cluttered with distractions and discouragements. And again, it feels like this weight. And maybe it's not a lot, but it's just a sustained pressure of it day after day after day. It feels like it's keeping you in the same patterns over and over. And so in order to grow and in order to mature and live into your God-given potential, you've got to reevaluate your inputs. Not just once, but this needs to be done consistently, certainly once a year. And I'm inviting you to do it this week. We all grow towards the ideas and the influences that have the dominating investment in us. And what I mean by that is, of course, we're exposed to low-quality information. You can't kind of seal off and only ever give attention to and be exposed to uh, information and people that optimally 
uh, enhance and build you up and encourage you. You know, I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, if the dominant investment of things that are happening in us are um, negative, are ungodly, are just mindlessly distracting, then that's the direction that we are going to grow towards. And so it's very important to be extra careful about what is being invested in you, what you're allowing, what you're welcoming in to your life and into your heart. In Philippians 4.8, again, very famous verse. We'll push this all the time on teenagers. But I want us to hear it. At whatever stage of life we're at, hear it with fresh challenge. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Nearing the end of his letter to the Philippians, Paul highlights this list of virtues, these lists, uh, this list of um, excellencies that he says, these should be sort of the, um, the pillars of your mindset. And they're built by welcoming, well, first maybe seeking out and then welcoming this kind of information and relational input into your life. And this is one of the simplest tools to come back to, maybe just on an annual basis, to actually use it as a grid to determine is the dominating investment that I'm allowing to happen in my life marked by these virtues? Not 100%, but is the dominating investment 70, 80, 90% of the information I take in and the um, relational influencers that are core to my life, do they fall within these categories, broadly speaking? Is the vast majority of what I give my attention to things that are true, things that are noble? And noble here refers to things that are honorable, they're worthy of respect, they're dignified, things that are right, right? It conforms to God's standards. They, there is an alignment uh, between this information and this influence and wisdom. Is it pure, right? Is it wholesome? Is it lovely and admirable? And these two words are really interesting. And just as a little placeholder, think about these two words in the context of your engagement online with social media. Because lovely, prosphile, speaks of what promotes peace rather than conflict. And euphema, which is translated admirable, relates to that which is positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. And these six objects, these six virtues, Paul says these are excellent. If you um, find and come across things like these, inputs like these, think about them. Kind of ruminate on them, ponder them. He says think about such things. And the word there, think, has so many different nuances. It's not just a flat kind of like, oh, I'm just acknowledging this is something beautiful or praiseworthy. He's saying, meditate on it, ponder it, 
logic around it, form your worldview around it. We now know that as we steep in information, there are these neural grooves in our brain that get connected so that subsequent exposure to that same information just reinforces new ways of thinking, new patterns of living. And, you know, I I could just imagine Paul with our understanding saying, yeah, just deepen these neural grooves in your life. Just keep going over them again and again. Just let it wash over you like a river, a, a, a river rapids wash over the stones and form them over time. And what Paul is drawing our attention to as Christians in the New Testament here is really a kind of warning and challenge that comes out of the Old Testament, which is to guard our heart. Philippians 4.23 says guard, or sorry, Proverbs 4.23 says guard your heart above all else because it's the source of life. Often this verse only kind of gets trotted out in the context of Christians who are consider, considering entering or re-entering the dating scene. Oh, guard your heart. There's, there's good wisdom there about how that applies to dating and romantic relationships. But that's not the context. That's not the, that's not the full application of this principle. The full application is every Christian, both relationally and informationally, needs to be on guard and make sure that what is coming into their mind and hearts is aligned with how they want to grow, where they want to go. Um, Does it line up with who they feel God is calling them to be? The heart in the Old Testament, and then you see this in different ways reinforced in the New Testament, is this place of central animating motivation. Today we might call it the self or the deep self or um, some might even say soul. Some of this biblical language is kind of like uh, nuanced ways of talking about the same thing, but it's, it's really referring to the deepest, most central part of who we are from which we live, out of which your life flows. In Mark 7, Jesus says, For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And he's saying that in response to people who were like, oh, what about people who can't touch this or don't go near the lepers or these, they were concerned about external contamination. And Jesus says, what you need to be much more concerned about is the state of your heart because that is going to be the place from which you live. In Luke 6, Jesus says, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. And even the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So as we store up things in our heart, as we allow certain inputs into our lives, that will form us, sometimes without us, our awareness, it will slowly form our motivations, habits, intentions, even the words eventually that we say and the actions that we take. So again, there's a subtext here of be very careful about what you allow into your life. The book of Proverbs again says, as you think in your heart, so you are. 
So depending on what's stored up in your heart, whether it's lies and deceit or God's truth, you might have a very um, disfigured, malformed understanding of who you are, or what life's about, or who God is and what God is like and what God wants you to do with the time that you've been given in this life. So guarding your heart is actually really critical at all times of life. But especially, I think, when you're seeking a reset, it needs to be given serious attention. There needs to be a bit of an inventory in terms of what is actually going into my life and is there any kind of an organized curation and, and, and leadership that I'm bringing to what, do I, what I allow in versus what I say no to? Or is it just kind of a free-for-all, like, yeah, just a huge dump of a mix of good, bad, ugly, all in, and then I kind of just sort it out afterwards. In Psalm 26, the psalmist cries, test me, Lord, and try me, examine my heart and my mind. He's saying, I can be blind to the state of my own mindset, to the state of my own heart. And there are times where I move through life, God, and I feel like, yep, things are good. But I need you to test me. I need you to try me. I need you to kind of evaluate me. I want you to examine my heart and mind. And he's doing that because he says, I want to eventually get rid of those inputs that are drawing me away from you and from the purpose that you've given me. So as we move into this new week, the question that I would invite us to ruminate on just for this week is, are you guarding your heart in your life? Like fairly actively in terms of your inputs? Well, let's first take, um, are you guarding your heart as it relates to just informational entertainment media <clears throat> inputs, books you're reading. I'm using that as broadly as I can, informational inputs. So we'll, we'll talk about relationships in a second. Let's just talk about information. Are you guarding your heart? Are you obsessively curating what you allow to be stored up in your heart? Now, what I don't want people to hear, because this can be a temptation, is to hear, oh, I see where this is going. I should only allow Christian things into my life and heart. That is not what Paul says. That's not what Philippians 4.8 says. It talks about virtuous things. And hopefully we can find many virtuous things in Christian material, whether it's Christian movies, books, articles, what have you. But there's a lot of garbage that is offered in the name of Christian entertainment. So I don't want you to think as simplistically as, oh, this is about ramping up my Christian inputs and completely holding, uh, you know, blocking any kind of uh, unchristian inputs. Because we know because of common grace, Proverbs 8 says God has, um, you know, wisdom cries out in the streets that we can learn from people. Like I learned from Liz Huber, who I, doesn't sound to me as I read her articles, maybe she's a Christian, I don't, know, I don't know if she is or not, but she has a lot of wisdom. And I say, oh, that's praiseworthy, that excellence, that those are excellent. Her input helps me to actually cooperate with God and learn how to cultivate a mindset that keeps me focused on the true and the beautiful and the good. So I'm not saying 
Are we guarding our heart and only allowing Christian material into our lives? What I'm saying is, am I, I guess to ask the question a different way is, am I vigilant in, in um, making sure the inputs that come into my life are motivating me and helping me pursue Jesus, regardless of where they're coming from? Or are the inputs that are coming into my life informationally kind of disfiguring my devotion to Jesus? They are sidelining the essential pursuit and priority and command. They're giving me an increasingly burdened sense of just lack of momentum or worse. I actually feel pulled away from God. I feel decentered from that sense of yeah, I know who God is, I know who I am, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. That sense of wholeness in Christ. And again, I want, I want to be careful what you're, to, to ensure what you're not hearing is um, a kind of a willful ignorance, movement into a forced ignorance. Lots of negative information, just reject it all and just sort of only allow inputs that are sunshine and rainbows and everything's happy and kind of this false positivity. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we, ha- we are called to live in this world. Paul says to the Ephesians, he starts his letter by saying, to the Ephesians in Ephesus, or to the church in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. Christians occupy two spaces at the same time, where we are and we are in Christ. And that means we need to be aware of what's happening in the world around us. But am I allowing a disproportionate investment of information that I can sense is pulling me away from moving into a deeper, more robust, more creative and interesting and transformative walk with God. Right? When is the last time you prayed that prayer of Psalm 26 as it relates to what you read, what you watch, what you expose yourself to, the news you listen to, how much you listen to those things, how you engage online. Again, keep filling those inputs out. But when is the last time you categorized all of that and said, God, test me and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. God, test me and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. So the first kind of phase is, are we guarding our hearts as it relates to the inputs of information in our lives? And the second is, are you guarding your heart as it relates to the relationship exposure and influences in your life? We say this to teenagers, right? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your closest three to five people that have that you, spend, that you hang out the most with and I'm going to be able to, with pretty accurate predictive power, tell you what your life is going to look like in five and ten years. That's such a good gut check for teenagers to hear. But again, we sort of stop telling people that after they're teenagers. But that principle still applies whether you're 20, 30, young families, uh, as a married couple, as empty nesters, as someone who's retired. Where you are right now You show me who the core three to five most influential people in your life are and what they value. I will show you the trajectory of your life. Proverbs 13 says to all people, not just teenagers, 
Walk with the wise and you will become wise. Walk with fools and you will become foolish. Are you walking, doing life, with people who are wise and who are encouraging you to move in the direction that you're convicted as a Christian you want to grow towards? Now again, I don't want you to fill in some of these blanks and say, what Pastor Jeff is saying is I need to have all Christian friends, no non-Christian friends, because all Christian friends are good influences, all non-Christian friends are bad influences. You would have to be pretty naive to come to that conclusion. There are people in your life who are Christians, who are wise, who are not perfect, but they are sincere in their pursuit of Jesus. And there are Christians who are immature. There are Christians who are hardened against the things of God. There are Christians who are just carrying on, prioritizing things that are actually drawing them away from God. They might genuinely be saved, um, but they're not necessarily a good influence on you. That they likely won't be. And likewise, you might have people who are not Christians in your life, but who bring a tremendous amount of wisdom and grace into your life that they really do facilitate a movement towards you fulfilling who God has called you to be, even though that's not really their intent. And of course, there are um, non-Christians who are going to pull you down. So it's not as easy as just simply saying, well, if I surround myself with Christians, I'll be fine. And if I keep non-Christians at bay, I'll be safe. No. This is about developing discernment about the relational inputs in our lives and saying, you know, if you think of concentric circles, you've got your core relationships, your close relationships, and kind of your casual relationships. That's a simple way of thinking about it. Core, um, close, and casual. And And I'm talking about your core. Those three to five people that have disproportionate influence in your life Are those people facilitating you moving into what God has for you? I'm not inviting you to adopt kind of a self-righteous Christianity where you're like, oh yes, I'm only going to allow Christians that are perfect like me or have it all together like me or have attained my level of uh, spiritual depth and walk with Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying... um, you know, cut out anybody from that core group of people who don't think like you. What I'm saying is be selective in who you allow to have a dominating investment in your life, relationally speaking, and understand that there's a small group of people that is surrounding you that is going to have a huge impact on the trajectory of the next five to 10 years of your life. And we need to reckon with that. We need to say, are there people who should actually be core? Because there's a lot more alignment between what I want in terms of my Christian faith and what they want. And maybe they've been a casual friend, but I want to move them more towards the center. And maybe there are people, good people, nothing wrong with it. It's not a judgment. You're just saying these friendships are, um, they just aren't helping me fully pursue and I'm not, I'm not going to cut them out of my life, but I'm going to marginalize their influence so that I can be more obedient to what God has called me to. 
Right? When's the last time you've kind of taken an inventory of these concentric circles of relationship and say, God, test me, try me, examine my heart, examine my relationships. Where do I need to change? What amendments do I need to make? Which people need to be moved towards the core? Which people need to be moved more towards the peripheral? Again, not necessarily cutting them out of your life, but lessening their influence. And why are we doing that? Just to reorganize our lives so that it's easier for for us? No, we're doing this so that we can grow in faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the mission that he's given us. So it's not a selfish pursuit. It's about saying, God, I want to maximally serve you with my life. So I'm going to be careful about the inputs of information and the inputs of people that are shaping my heart. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then Paul writes, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice. So here's what I want you to do. Here's how you can take this message and put it into practice. And I just want you to do this for this week only. But for this week, what I'm going to do, and I invite you to follow me, is to have a piece of paper and to pray every day, God, test me, try me, uh, examine my heart and my mind and my relationships. And the first thing you're going to do is just keep, a, not a minute by minute or an hour by hour, but a, a little, little journal, a little record, do a little bit of record keeping around what are the things that you're watching, reading, exposing yourself to. And basically, you know, just some time things. Watch this for an hour, read this. No judgment of it. Don't worry about it. Don't, this is not like evaluation. Just record keeping. Just record what you reflexively do through your week. Write it down. And then at the end of your week, look at that informational input and say, if nothing changes, how do I imagine this is going to form me over the next five years? And then begin to use Philippians 4.8 as a guide to say, which of these could I begin to sideline and which of these can I begin to amplify? Maybe there's something new I need to introduce. And then you're going to do the same thing as it relates to people. You're not going to be <coughs> evaluating people in sort of a a judging, condemnatory way, what you're going to be attentive to is who do you actually spend the most amount of time with? That's what you're going to be paying attention to. Who has disproportionate investment in my life? And then as you kind of get a bit of a tally, I spend on average like five to 15 hours a week with this person. These are the people that dominate my social circle. Now that might be smaller right now because of COVID restrictions, but this, that actually makes this a really good time to say, who are my dominating influences right now? And do they need, does there need to be a reset? And then you look at this group and you look at how they're forming you and you say, if nothing changes here, how do I imagine these inputs relationally are going to form me over the next five years? And then you're going to use that as a point of prayer and reflection to say, do there need to be adjustments here? Again, not cutting people out of your life, 
but are there people that are more on the peripheral that I would like to become more central in my life? Because I see them pursuing Jesus, not perfectly, but the way that I want to pursue Jesus, and I want to learn from them. And I can't learn from them if I'm spending two hours a year hanging out with them. I need to start connecting with them every month or every other month. So we want to become aware of what our informational inputs are and say, how are these forming me? And our relational inputs and saying, how are these forming me? And then inviting God and trusting that God will lead us to some application after this week of, where do I go from here, God? Would you test me? Would you try me? Would you examine my heart and my mind? So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you obsessively curate your inputs. May you guard your heart so that out of it, your life moves in the direction of that which is excellent and praiseworthy and God-honoring and life-giving. And may the God of peace be with you as a result. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. At 10 o'clock, we are going to be doing a little coffee and connect. So if you have the Zoom link from the Summit newsletter, feel free to join us for about a half an hour and we'll connect about our week. Take care.